And sometimes like I'll tell people my routine, but whenever I tell people that they're like, wow, you're so disciplined. I'm like, I'm it's really not discipline. It's just habit. You only need discipline for like six weeks, maybe a little longer. And then it's just, then it's just habit. It's like that guy at the gym, you know, I see that guy at the gym who's super ripped. And I'm like, yeah, you didn't even try. Like you just showed up because that's just what you do. It's the woman who like just had a baby and she's 50 pounds overweight and she's on the fucking treadmill and sweating. And I'm like, that's the woman I admire because she had to make the decision to like get here and she's trying to build good habits. And like, that is hard. And there's no joke about that. And there's no quick fix for that hard. You have to push through to get to the point where it's a habit. And then you're smooth sailing. Then you're good. Welcome to Money Self-Made, a show where I interview remarkable people about minimalism, meditation, mindfulness, and money. And today's episode is a great one. I think you're going to love it. We have guest April Davila, who is not only a very successful published author, but a certified meditation teacher trained by some of the world's leading experts in the field. You're really going to like this if you've ever been meditation curious or wanted to start a practice of your own, or even if you're an advanced meditator. April joins us to enlighten us about how we can develop a daily meditation practice, why meditation is actually scientifically proven to help you live longer and look younger. So who needs night cream when you have meditation and just make your everyday life quality so much better. So we talk about everything from how to develop a daily practice down to what it's like in the trenches of a silent retreat. You're really going to enjoy this. And I just have a special surprise for you at the very end of the episode, there is a free gift. April herself hosts a meditation for us. So you're definitely going to want to listen to the very end so you can put all of these teachings into practice right away. And I promise it will make your day better. So make sure to hang in there until the very end to listen to our meditation. Before we get started, please remember to smash that like button if you're watching on YouTube and subscribe so you never miss another episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. And without further ado, please help me welcome April Davila. Welcome to the show. So tell me more. You were just telling me you are a meditation teacher. Yeah. So I'm a longtime practitioner. And then a couple of years ago, decided almost on a whim, I wanted to take it to the next level. And mostly I was curious to learn more about it. And so I figured a teacher training is always like, you know, if you want to teach something, you got to know it pretty well. So I signed up to do a teacher training with Jack Cornfield, who has always been a teacher that I've admired. And he was working with Tara Brock, who is also just huge in the mindfulness field. And it was a two-year program. It was kind of like a little mini masters, you know, it was weekly assignments all online, which made it actually easier when everything went online, like we were already online. And then in the second year of the program, you start teaching, you have like a mentor for that second year, and then you graduate and then you're off and teaching on your own, which is where I'm at now. Wow. Congratulations. That's huge. Thank you. You must be really excited. <laughs> you know, it's been because I wasn't really sure what I was going to do with it. It's been really 
interesting to watch it settle in. So not only has it become part of how we have framed a very important meeting in terms of mindfulness and writing, but I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm doing my writing coaching is centered around mindfulness and writing. I'm leading separate classes that don't have to do with writing. They're just meditation. I've got my family meditating. It's great. It's really great. So I obviously know all about you because there was a time and I wish this was right now where I saw you every day and we meditated together every day. But for those who are being introduced to your stuff, what is kind of your background in terms of like what inspired you to get into meditation and what are your credentials and and your journey on this process? Yeah. So I think like a lot of people, I came to meditation because I was in a bad state. You know, I think we all have periods in our lives where we go through bad times and you got to find something that works for you. And for me, meditation fit the bill. So to give a little bit of context on it. So I got my degree in writing in 2010. I'd been writing, but not having a lot of success with it. A lot of rejections. I was going around and around on revisions with the novel, never really getting to a point where I was like, it feels like a novel. It just never really got there and just getting more and more frustrated. Meanwhile, having two small children, working full time. I mean, I was exhausted. Uh, and then I guess it was 2016 where I just hit a wall. I got so depressed. And then as I got more depressed, I was drinking because I was like, well, this will help. <laughs> so didn't really help like spoiler. So I would drink and then that would make it harder to get up in the morning to write. And if I didn't write, I was like, well, I just feel like my purpose isn't like, I wasn't, I felt such an urge to tell stories and it just wasn't happening. I mean, it was, I continued to get up every morning at five o'clock to write before work. The thing that finally broke me was I had been in marketing and I switched to being a technical writer at an engineering company and it involved a much longer commute. And so not only was I exhausted, but I was leaving the house right as my kids woke up because they were little. And then I was getting home right as they were going to bed. And I was like, this sucks. Like, what is the point of working this hard and I don't even get to see my kids? So I actually asked to take some time off, like mental health leave. And they were really good about it to their credit. And then found myself in this like, well, what do I do? Like, this is not working for me. What do I do? And I ended up in a mindfulness program that was designed, partly it was a like sobriety program, partly it was a mental health program. Like I still don't see myself as someone who had like a drinking problem per se, but I was definitely using alcohol in an unhealthy way. And so that was an important component of it. And then the mental health aspect was where they really honed in on what's making you so unhappy. And learning mindfulness and learning also, I'm just really interested in the context of mindfulness and how it springs from Buddhism and the history of the Buddhist texts and, and some of the traditions behind mindfulness. When I'm teaching, I keep it really secular. So I, you know, mindfulness, I feel like should be accessible to anyone of any religion. It's, there's so many benefits to it. And it's such a simple thing, ultimately, that I really keep it non-denominational, like, you know, I keep the Buddhism out of it, but that's, you know, my personal interest is in the, in the stories behind the beliefs, the philosophies. And the more I dug into that, the better I started feeling, you know, I stopped drinking so much. I started feeling a little bit better. And then what I found, you know, looking back now, I'm like, what, I guess that would be like six years ago. Now I recognize that when I got serious about meditation was when my writing started to take off. So what happened was I finally finished the novel. 
I got an agent, I got a publishing deal. I wrote a short story that not only got published, but got nominated for a Pushcart Prize. I wrote a second novel that was like much more complicated and had a lot more to it in a fraction of the time. Like that first novel took me eight years. And then I wrote this second novel, which was a much bigger project. I wrote it in two years. I'm almost, I'm doing final edits now for my agent. And when I look back, like the one thing that changed is that I brought mindfulness into my life. And it's such a deeply personal thing that for a long time, I wasn't really talking about it. And then when I graduated from my teacher training program, one of the things that my teacher said to me was, well, now that you are able to teach, you have to. <laughs> now you're obligated. If people want to learn, it's almost considered, I mean, there's no, there's no sinning in Buddhism, but they're like, if you're qualified and people want to know, you should share it with them. And so I've kind of just started putting it out there that that was, you know, in working with Paula, we decided to, to start the mindful writing thing, but that actually even evolved out of, she was doing it and I was doing, we were both hosting once a week meetings where we would meditate for a few minutes with our friends and then we would write for an hour or so. Just trying to share that idea of like, hey, this really made a huge difference in my life. And I want to share it with you guys. And then we realized we were both doing that and we're like, let's, you know, join forces and when we asked the people that we were working with, what do you most want? Like, how could this be most useful to you? They all said more meetings, more like more times on the calendar, give us more. So we brought in a couple more teachers. We have, I think we're at 15 meetings a week now, all free of charge donation based. So, you know, we asked for $5, but we also know that writers don't always even have $5. So everyone's always welcome. And it's just been, not only was it a lifesaver through the pandemic, just to have community and people to talk to about writing and to actually get some writing done because that was really hard during the pandemic to focus. But as even as we've evolved out of that, uh, it's it's just been wonderful. Paulette and I are always texting each other after meetings being like, I love these guys, they're so great. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. And I can't believe I just learned so many amazing things about you because I've actually seen you quite a bit, but we haven't had, we usually talk about writing or meditation. I totally get the whole thing about the drinking. I even had a guest on the podcast. I'll send you the episode of Belle Robertson where you're like, is this a problem? Like it's yeah. wine. It's like a, a glass yeah. or two of wine, but I wait, I feel terrible. And I've noticed it increases my anxiety and like that blah, depressed feeling. It just like really yeah. derails me. So, and it yeah. messes with your sleep. So like, it, that's like, how do you even rejuvenate if you're not getting good sleep? Like I sleep so much better now that I've quit drinking. And there's so many ways in which I have no problem with drinking. Like, let's be clear. Like I keep wine in the house for anyone who comes over, but like for me personally, the transition to not drinking every night has been such a game changer. And it's really hard because that I was using the wine to quiet so much anxiety that I was, that I hadn't even acknowledged existed in my brain until I tried to stop. I don't know, like maybe you can relate to this, but like, you're like, well, it's only a glass or two a night. I'll just stop for a week. And like for a week, you're like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And then <laughs> like on day seven, you're like, give me my wine, which wasn't at all. Like, I thought I was like proving that I was fine without the wine, but like really I wasn't dealing with the shit that was underlying it all. Nice. Yeah, no, I totally feel that. I can't remember the first time I, de I decided to quit, but that feeling of itchiness after nine days or something. And finally yeah. I made it, I made it a hundred days this year and I'm really proud and I kind of just nice. want to quit forever. Do you have any tips on like how you knocked it? Cause I have a few of my own, but I would love to hear yours. I mean, I did manage to get through both 
of my pregnancies without drinking, but like the priorities shift a little when you're pregnant. So it doesn't feel like the same game. And I really was like counting down the days until I could have that glass of wine again. But in terms of actually kicking it, I mean, having mindfulness, having a regular practice so that I could start to look at what was bothering me. I, I really deeply feel like everyone should have a therapist. Like, I feel like everyone should have, especially artistic types, <laughs> like we need therapists. Because what happens is particularly if you sit quietly with yourself and some hard emotions come up, it can be really helpful to have someone, a professional to like help you deal with those hard emotions and, and whatever is underlying those hard emotions. And then on the very practical front of simply like when dinner rolled around, I used to like pour the glass of wine while I was making dinner. So for like a solid year, I got really into like mocktails just for the process of like making something for myself before I settled into like make dinner for everybody else. I mean, myself included, but still just having that moment of like, right now I'm doing this one little thing for me. And it would always be something a little delicious. And I would allow myself like to go super high calorie with it. Cause I figured, well, I'm not drinking two, three glasses of wine right before bed. I can have something that's full of like pineapple juice, which is just like straight sugar or whatever it is. And even doing that, I lost 10 pounds without even trying when I quit. I didn't even realize like how swollen I was from drinking every night. It was weird. People kept being like, wow, you look great. I was like, I didn't do anything. But then I realized I had, I had stop drinking every night. And it just made a world of difference on so many levels. Oh yeah, totally. I can actually, it's funny podcasting because I can see it in my face. If I drank or like uh, ate terrible food that week, I was like, oh, that yeah. was that week. So yeah, <laughs> that's epic. Good for you. That's really cool. The naked mind is what I read and I love it. It's a little heavy fisted for like the, the wine drinker nightly, if you're kind of like a light drinker, but still it totally does the trick. So yeah. Yeah. I love it. And also I think what people don't realize, like one secretly, a lot of people struggle with that because it is so indoctrinated into our culture. And then two, yeah. you're so right. Like the writing and stuff can be really affected. Like, I think we really underestimate how much alcohol affects us, even just a little tiny bit. Um, yeah. I can feel my rate, my creative radar goes off if I'm drinking. Yeah. And I didn't even recognize that because I had never not drank as a creative person. And then the other thing is like pot, like I realized pretty early on that pot had to go because like when I first started wanting to write, I had to let pot go because I would sit down at my computer. I'd be like trying to think of the word for like spoon, you know, the, <laughs> I just couldn't think of like, it was nothing, nothing was happening in my head the day after getting high. So Pot went pretty early on, but drinking, I hung in there for a while. Yeah. So cool. I love that. So mindfulness, I agree. And I love your group. And I want to dive into a very important meeting and to give context yeah. to listeners. Would you like to tell them about a very important meeting, how it came to be and what exactly it is? Yeah. So exactly what it is, is a mindful writing community online. And uh, like I said, we have 15 meetings a week hosted by different meeting leaders. And we start each meeting with a 10 minute meditation. And then we go immediately into a 45 minute quiet writing time. And then when the full hour is up, we give people five minutes at the beginning. So it all adds up to one hour. And then we kind of break the silence. And if people, we always say, if people are on a roll, by all means, just log off and keep writing, which sometimes people do. Like this morning, I had someone who usually hangs out to write and she just dropped in the chat. She's like, I'm on a roll, I gotta go. So I was like, yes, go, right. But if people are ready for a break, uh, we hang out, we talk about writing and reading. And for me, it's been a lot about finding my people. 
Like I feel in particular, when you have small kids, you can get sucked into, and, and I'm sure every community has this version of it. But for me, when I had small kids and I would go to any kind of gathering and be all these parents of small kids and all they wanted to talk about was like diaper rash and breastfeeding and like all, and, and then every now and then I get so bored of all that talking. I'd be like, has anyone read any good books lately? And everyone would just stare at me and I'm like, okay, these are not my people. I need people who like, when I say, what are you reading? They're like, oh, which book? Like they want to talk about all the things that they're reading and thinking about. And from, and writers are those people, writers are readers. I always say, if, if you're a writer, you are a reader, adjust accordingly. You know, if you don't want to read, then you're probably not a writer. So when you get a group of writers together, it's really fun to talk about books. And then sometimes like also in my group this morning, even someone was struggling with like, I don't know whether to put the story in past tense or present tense. She's like, what do you guys think? Like, what are the pros and cons of these things? And we had this 15 minute discussion of the pros and cons of present tense versus past tense. And, you know, as a writer, you're like, oh yeah, that's an interesting idea. And, and then you can apply that to the stories that you're working on, or maybe it won't even come into play for months until you're working on something else. But it's just been such a great community. I love the community. And in terms of my own writing process, I think writing in itself can be therapeutic. So even if someone doesn't want to be a professional writer, for example, oh, yeah. I love your group, which I do professionally write. But I think if you can't afford a therapist or you can't find a good one, another way is to journal and like ask yourself questions and write out the answers. Yeah. So I love that your group is just this hour of serious introspection from meditation to, you know, journaling and yeah. that kind of self-reflection. And we do have people who come just for the, you know, a chance to, to just have some creative time for themselves and they journal. We also have people, a lot of times people will come, like we haven't seen them for a while and then they'll check back in and they're like, either I have an assignment or I have a chapter or I have a, you know, an article due that um, I just haven't been able to like sit down and force myself to work on it for whatever reason. And the, but if you put it on your calendar and you're like, okay, for 45 minutes, I'm going to try. And it's amazing what can happen in 45 minutes. I mean, I've had it generally I work on my novel projects during the very important meetings, but now and then if I have a freelance piece that I know I've just been avoiding, I'll put that front and center. And I'm like, okay, just for 45 minutes, you're going to sit and just work on this. And it'll be done at the end of the 45 minutes. It's amazing how like just sitting down, down, focus your mind for a few minutes and it'll just flow. I absolutely love that completely. And I think to back when I joined, it was when I had Paulette on the podcast, which if you're listening at home, you should definitely ah. watch Paulette. She's the co-founder. Yeah. And yeah, like I have not been going to weekend meetings and it's like my weekends totally derailed and I feel off when I don't go now. So yeah. it's like this great cornerstone thing to build your day, especially if you're self-employed, like just yeah. having that accountability is, is really key. And I would love to kind of know your thought process. I mean, why is it 45 minutes was the Pomodoro yeah. technique in there somewhere yeah. or like the accountability system? I know there's a lot of psychology behind the system. Yeah, it's a good question because we, well, first we sent out a survey would this be of interest to you? How long would you want the meditation to be? How long do you want to spend writing? We looked at what some other groups are doing. There's a couple other groups that do a similar thing, but they do like a 20 minute meditation and then a three hour writing. And what we found was that like, even for me who like I'm big on meditation and writing, but like three hours is a big chunk of time to carve out of my day, especially during the pandemic with the kids home all day. Like it just, 
it, that wasn't working for me. So I was like, okay, so we know that's too long. And then what's too short. I almost feel like 45 minutes of writing isn't enough. Like I could, I could definitely write more. And we have thought about possibly offering some, some meetings that are longer, some, you know, some variety, but right now it has worked really well to just keep them all the same. Like people don't really have to think about what, what type of meeting should I sign up for? It's just, you just click on it, put it on your calendar show up. We didn't, there was no science behind why 45 minutes of writing, 10 minutes of meditation, just simply life experience that like those tend to be good chunks of time to do those activities, particularly in a group. And you do want to leave a little bit of time for social and you also have to respect that people are busy. So we landed there. There may be changes in the future. We'll see how it goes. Very cool. So, I mean, talking about your mindfulness and meditation journey and the level of mastery that you've accomplished, what was it like starting out? Did you ever go through that phase where it was uncomfortable or did it click yeah. right away? And like, what have you learned? What, what, where are you now versus where were you like five yeah. years ago? That's such a good question because I kind of skipped over the part where I was an off and on meditator for like eight years. <laughs> Yeah. So I actually, my first meditation, first time I ever meditated, uh, we were, my husband and I were living in Northern California and we went to Spirit Rock, which is a meditation center there. They had a day long. And I was like, well, this sounds interesting. I'll go check it out. Loved it. Uh, Jack Cornfield happened to be the teacher that day, which I just got lucky. I didn't even know who he was. So I had, had this wonderful experience. And then I went home and I meditated a little bit on my own, but like I don't know. I never got to that beautiful experience again. And so I very quickly got discouraged and I'm like, I'm, I'm not doing it right. Or all these narratives that play in your head. So then I, I didn't meditate for a while. And then I was like, I want to get back to it. So I signed up for class and I would go weekly for like six weeks. And then I was really back into it. And then it would kind of fade. And, and I kind of, I just did that for years of off again, on again. Sometimes I would be really diligent. And what I ended up when I took the break from work and decided to get serious about taking care of myself, one of the things that the program did was you signed up for this class. So there was an in-person component, but there was also an at-home component and you were expected to meditate every day. And, and it like having somebody say that to me of like, and investing in it, right? Like it wasn't a free program. You're going to sit down and meditate every day. And they were 25 minute meditations. You called in and then we had in-person check-ins. And I think I needed somebody to kind of say, you're going to do this and you're going to do it every day and you're going to be consistent about it. And that was when it finally clicked for me was doing it every day. You stop when you do it every day. It's kind of like writing in the same or anything that you do every day exercise. Like if you look at the guy at the gym, who's like super fit, he didn't hem and haw over whether he was going to the gym today. He just got up and went like, <laughs> he just does that every day. He goes to the gym without really thinking twice about it. And so I needed to get to a place where I wasn't really thinking twice about it. It's just what I do. Like, and I had to integrate it into my routine in a way that I could sustain. And sometimes like I'll tell people my routine. So my routine is that like I get up in the morning and I get a cup of coffee and I sit and while I drink my coffee, I journal for one page, close it up. I sit on my little meditation cushion over here for usually 15 minutes, depending on whatever. And then I get up and I write. And then about an hour into my writing, I open Zoom so I can welcome in my very important meeting friends and I write with them for 45 minutes. And then if I'm lucky, I go back to writing for a few more hours. That really depends on what's going on with the kids. But whenever I tell people that, they're like, wow, you're so disciplined. I'm like, it's really not discipline. It's just habit. You only need discipline for like six weeks 
maybe a little longer. And then it's just, then it's just habit. It's like that guy at the gym, you know, I see that guy at the gym who's super ripped. And I'm like, yeah, you didn't even try. Like you just showed up because that's just what you do. It's the woman who like just had a baby and she's 50 pounds overweight and she's on the fucking treadmill and sweating. And I'm like, that's the woman I admire because she had to make the decision to like get here and she's trying to build good habits. And like, that is hard. And there's no joke about that. And there's no quick fix for that hard. You have to push through to get to the point where it's a habit. And then you're smooth sailing. Then you're good. I so agree with you there. And I really am on board with the daily thing. So that's, I find the problem with, I mean, the way time is structured, I'm not really sure who came up with the concept of like a week and five days and a weekend, but Saturday and Sunday tend to derail my habits. Mm. So I love that you have a meeting every day. And I've noticed the same thing for me. You know, it has to be every single day and I can't be like, oh, I take Saturdays off or something like that. Well, I take Sundays off from my writing, like my official writing. I do still get up and journal and meditate, but I, then I usually will go like crawl back in bed with my husband or something, but I do try to keep those two things. And I count that journaling as writing. So, you know, I I've never been super strict about, Oh, I have to write every day. But then when I thought about it, I, I do write every day. I just don't work on my novel every day. I don't write, you know, I don't do my freelance work every day. I, I do take days off from that kind of stuff. I think you're totally like, downplaying yourself the fact that you do that on Sundays absolutely counts as a practice but I've also heard one of my favorite quotes for like discipline and developing habits is you can miss one day but never two so like that's the whole thing when things get completely derailed is like you miss a day feel guilty about it and are like oh I give up and just completely blow the whole thing up vacations do tend to derail me or like every time the kids school schedule changes and I have to get up at a different time I do have to kind of bring in a little bit more of that discipline and reestablish I mean, it happens. I'm not, I I guess to say it's completely smooth sailing is overselling it a little bit because there will be bumps in the road. I guess if I never went on vacation or if I like (laughs) never let the kids do anything then it would be smooth sailing. But yeah, you do have to, life happens and getting back in is hard. Yeah. Yeah, If you were like a monk that lived in total solitude on a mountain monastery, then I'm sure it would be easy, but that's the whole point, right? Is like anybody could be enlightened if we all lived in a sealed bubble so of course like daily stuff gets in the way but that's why we need meditation and mindfulness I think so what are some of the like noticeable differences in your life that you've found since practicing meditation and mindfulness they creep up on you you know I think that's the funny thing about it is that at first you're kind of like well you know I feel nice afterwards but I'm not really sure why I'm doing this but then as time goes by and just little things where like my husband will say something And instead of flying off the handle, because I think he's saying something else, like, or I think he's being passive aggressive, I can just be like, I can address it without all of that emotional overlay. I was actually talking about that with the class I was teaching this morning. Let me back up. So in the Buddhist context, when we're talking about mindfulness, the the first step in the path to well-being um, it's called the Noble Eightfold Path. But the very first step in the path is right view, to see things as they really are. And so the example I gave my class this morning is that like, if my husband says to me, I thought you were going to unload the dishwasher. And <laughs> if I lay a bunch of like my own emotional issues on top of that, what I hear is like, oh, you're a terrible wife. Or like, I can't believe you didn't unload the dishwasher. Or, you know, he's definitely leaving me like, oh, the relationship's over. Like, you, I know I'm not alone in this. It's a little embarrassing to share it, but I know I'm not alone because like we do that. We overlay 
decades of life experience onto all he said was, I thought you were going to unload the dishwasher. And I'm making this up. This isn't actually an exchange that we had. What mindfulness has allowed me to do is it's the pause. So in practicing mindfulness, you practice noticing where your mind goes to. Oh, that's interesting. I'm thinking about this. And then you come back to your anchor and you kind of recenter and you, you begin again. What that is, is training for when you are out in the world and someone says something. And my initial instinct is to like rage against like whatever perceived injustice has been thrown at me. But I have this half a second pause where I'm like, huh, is that what's really happening right now? Is, is that how it really is? in the present moment, what did he really say? He said, I thought you were gonna unload the dishwasher. And, and when I have that moment to pause, I'm like, oh yeah, I didn't get to it. And then like, boom, like an hour long <laughs> argument has just been completely derailed. And instead of arguing, he says, oh, well, I'll get to it. You go do what you're doing with the kids. Talking about like how mindfulness has like really helped my life. That's probably the biggest one. And it's the same with my kids too, of like, if I'm feeling impatient and the kids are doing something and he's, or my daughter or my son, they're like really focused on this thing over here and I want them to be doing this thing. And before I started practicing regularly, I was more inclined to be like, just stop it and come help me or like get really frustrated and angry instead of being like, okay, clearly what they're doing is really important to them. Maybe I can take a second and just say like, oh, what you're working on? Okay, that's great. Can we do that after you help me put the dishes away or put the groceries away or feed your dog or whatever it is that I need them to do? So I'm just like that much more of a patient parent. It just, it just creeps in in all those little ways. It also has affected my writing quite a bit. One of the things I've really integrated into my coaching with mindfulness is, is how it has affected my writing and these very concrete ideas. The same thing, you know, talking about right view of what's really there. When I implement that consciously with my editing process, I find that I'm a much better editor of my own work. So if I'm reading something, so an example is my second manuscript for my new book. I was rereading it. I always try to take a little break. I finish the, the draft and I, I print it out and I put it down and I come back in to read it with a fresh eye. And I read the first line and, and the first line was, it was raining. And I was like, oh God, that was a boring sentence. Like that is like maybe the most boring sentence that anyone's ever written. It was raining. And what I realized is in my head, I had overlaid all these things. Like it was dark and it was like a heavy rain and, and the characters are outside, you know, they're in the rain and it's, I wanted it to be this really dramatic thing. But what I wrote was it was raining. And when I can look at what's on the page with this idea of right view of like actually seeing what's really there, what is on the page is not at all matching what's in my head. And so then I'm able to be like, oh, that's not what I meant to say. I meant to say it was, you know, storming and dark and these big fat raindrops are leaving divots in the ground and like get really descriptive with what was actually in my head and reading through my draft in that way. And I think like this can apply to pretty much any kind of writing, like having done a fair amount of marketing, sometimes you probably had this experience where you like, you put together something and you're like, yeah, that's good. And then you come back to it and you're like, I don't know. Actually, I think maybe I kind of missed the mark on that one. And being able to see that something isn't on the page the way it is how you wanted it to be in your head is, again, it's that first step of that's not what's really there. I was projecting things onto this so that I thought that it was there, but it isn't really there. That has been a real game changer for me in the writing. When I was on a road trip across America earlier this year, yeah. talk about like derailment of my whole system. And Ooh. I was so grateful for a very yeah. important meeting during that time because it was like sort of stability when I could make it. But what I did learn is like we were staying in Atlanta. 
at a family's house and there was a lake outside the house that I could paddleboard on in the mornings, which was lovely. Mm -hmm. And the writing and the meditation was wonderful in tandem because I realized that sometimes I need to write a scene and I need to describe the details like leaves blowing for example Mm -hmm. so while I would be paddle boarding I would have to I would just pay really close attention to those little details like what the water looked like when it rippled and Mm -hmm. what kind of animals were there so writing is wonderful because I think it forces you to be like more in the moment because you could think oh I might have to describe something like this in a scene and then of course meditation that is to me meditation is being exactly in the moment. That's actually how I define mindfulness meditation is being aware of the present moment as it is without any judgment or expectation. Like that's, that's mindfulness meditation. So you can have, you can sit on your cushion and meditate, but you can just as easily have a mindful paddle or a mindful stroll, or just like, it's just being aware of your surroundings without letting your mind race forward or back or worry or ruminate about things. Just just being there. And it feels nice. It feels nice to let go of all that crap that just runs around in your head over and over and over again and does no good running around in your head except to stress you out. 100%. And that's probably something we should clarify for people who are listening, who maybe are new to meditation or haven't really dove Mm -hmm. in is like, there's a lot of misconceptions that you need to be like a Buddhist monk on a mountain, on a pillow in a like special pose. What would you say are like some of the misconceptions? Uh, That's such a good question. Yeah. It's funny because because particularly like transcendental man- meditation had a huge, like in, I guess in the eighties, it had this huge surge in the United States, transcendental meditation. And I'm actually not even that familiar, but I know there's a mantra involved. And I think there is like a particular position that you're supposed to sit in. Um, one of the reasons I like insight meditation and, and Hey, if, you know, if mantras working for you, you know, go for it. I, whatever works. But for me, the idea of insight meditation of simply a practice of being aware of the present moment as things are without judgment. It just lowered the threshold for me of what I thought I needed to do. You don't have to sit in any particular way. I mean, when I teach my introduction to mindfulness class, I like to say that like one of the reasons people sit on the ground meditating is that meditation originated out of Buddhism, which sprang from in Northern India, Tibet area, Uh, 2,500 years ago, there just weren't that many chairs. People sat on the ground. That's where they sat. So there's really no reason you have to be on a cushion, except for sometimes for me, like the reason I do sit on a cushion is that to, to move spaces is kind of a signal to me emotionally of like, oh, I'm doing this now. In the same way that like when I walk into my office and sit down in my chair, okay, I'm writing now. So for me, there's kind of that aspect to it. And I like my little corner with my cushion and it works for me. But then there's also like, I always catch myself bound, like I'll do this at the end of the meditation, which some people take as like a, a deeply religious thing, you know, it's hands in prayer, a little bow. But this is to me, it's just a way to express gratitude. I never did this until I went on my first meditation retreat when it was silent and you weren't allowed to talk. And, you know, people were feeding me and teaching me meditation and not being able to say thank you. I, I started just like giving these little bows and now it's kind of just become a habit where I'll be like, oh, thank you so much. And I don't even realize I'm doing it. And then I'll realize I am. And I'm like, I hope I'm not freaking people out. Like they're going to think I'm super, I don't know, dogmatic or you have to, you have to fold your hands in prayer and bow. No. I also, I like to tell the story of the the cat at the monastery. This is a story one of my teachers used to tell of a monastery where there was a cat that would get into the meditation hall and you know how cats do, they rub up against you and it was very disruptive. And so what they started doing is when they banged the gong to call people to meditate in the morning, someone would leash the cat outside next to the the gong so the cat couldn't uh, disrupt everybody in their meditation and this went on for so long 
at one day when the cat wasn't around, you know, they bang the gong and they're like, where's the cat? We can't meditate till we've had the cat. The cat has to be leashed, which completely, like if the cat's not there, it's not going to be a nuisance. You don't have to leash the cat. That's not like a necessity for meditation. So I really think it's important to keep in mind that all of the accoutrement and posturing, like I have a bell, I have my gong. You've heard it. I love, I love your my gong. gong. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need a gong. You don't need a gong. It was a gift and I love it. And it's a nice way to end my meditations, but you absolutely don't need any of it. And I really encourage people in terms of posture to just sit in a way that's comfortable. In fact, if you sit with your arms like out on your knees like that, you're actually putting a lot of pressure on your neck and it can get really uncomfortable if you sit for more than a few minutes. So I would say just, you know, put your hands wherever is comfortable for you. Pull them up, pull them down. I mean, do this if you like this. You know, some people like to do hand postures. I don't know. It's, if it works for you, go with what works for you. I love that so much. Yeah, I turn off my camera and just lay down because talk about cat nice. chaos. That is my morning. You all need to, don't need to see that, but it really does add an extra level of mindfulness when you have to deal with cat, <laughs> hungry cats first thing while you try to meditate. So. Yeah. I doubt readers are all familiar or listeners are all familiar with your mentors. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on Jack Kornfield sure. and Tara Brock? Yeah. So Jack Kornfield was among one of the first generations of Americans to go study meditation in the East and bring it back to America in the sixties when people were starting to think about things in different ways. You know, you have a, you have a lot going on in the sixties. And this was one of those things. They kind of landed on the coast. So there's like a New York contingent. There's a Bay Area contingent. That Bay Area contingent included Jack Cornfield. So, you know, he's an ordained monk. He he went in a very young age and studied, but he's kind of he's kind of one of the main guys who brought Buddhism to the West. Then Tara Brock was actually one of his students, but she and Jack teamed up to, to start teaching teachers so that um, they could have more of a ripple effect in terms of spreading mindfulness, because there's a big demand for it. People are starting to understand how good it is for you. The physical benefits, I mean, lists, lists and lists of, of physical benefits that are scientifically proven in like legit studies. There's some really interesting science coming out of UCLA, emotional well-being, physical well-being, anti-aging, I mean, there's just, there's so many ways in which mindfulness is good for you. So they have done a lot in this program that they're teaching and they do it every two years. So they just started a two-year program. Let's see, I guess this would have been the spring of 2001 that they just started it. So they'll start another in spring of 2003. If anyone out there is listening and wants to go this route, you should definitely look them up. It's a great program. And like I said, they keep it very non-Buddhist. So secular it's based in science. What are we trying to do here? Simply noticing what's happening in the present moment without judgment. Very simple, very simple and yet very hard to do consistently and for periods of time. I have so many questions. First of all, that explains your youthful beauty. Oh, and, sweet. <laughs> yeah. For those of us who are watching on YouTube. And then what are the various different kind of like an overview of the many different types of meditations? If there's so many that you can't count, that's totally okay. And then I'll ask you about your silent retreat. I've got so many questions. Oh, okay. Uh, there are so many kinds of meditation. Yeah. So uh, like I said, there's transcendental meditation, which was really big for a while, but they actually, you have to, as I understand it, there's like, fees involved, like to join something or other, not a lot of experience with that. And then there's uh, like, there's visualization meditations, which a lot of people will do. 
sleep meditations. Uh, I'm all for apps like Mindspace. And I mean, there's so, there's so many resources now that it's really about finding what works for you and whatever you're struggling with. Like if it's that you're not sleeping well and you like, there's an app for that, right? You can, you can find meditations that will help you sleep in terms of, so the kind of meditation that I'm practicing is called insight meditation. And as I said, it's really about paying attention to the present moment, but even within the practice and tradition of insight meditation, which in the traditional wording, it's Vipassana is what it's called. Even within the Vipassana tradition, there's loving kindness meditation, which is an important part of it. It's an important component. I'll digress just a little bit to explain the loving kindness portion of it, because when you're meditating, I think this is a really important thing to know. If, if you decide to give it a shot and you sit down to meditate, and you, you know, you quiet your mind, you take a deep breath and you're focused on your breath and then your mind wanders and you're like, oh, so stupid. I can't do anything right. So we get better at what we practice, right? So what you're doing when you do that is you're actually doubling down on what the Buddhist text would call delusion. Because when your mind wanders, you have to ask yourself, is it true that you're stupid and can't do anything right? Or is it maybe true that minds wander? Like our minds are made to think, they're evolved to think, that's what they do. And so when you are unkind with yourself, you're actually doubling down on delusion and you're actually moving away from things as they really are, right? That idea of seeing things as they really are. If you can say like, oh, my mind wandered, that's what happens, minds wander. I come back to my breath, I refocus. Then you've moved in the path of seeing things as they really are, acknowledging, recognizing, oh, my mind wandered, that's what happened right now. I'm going to come back to my breath and refocus. And I think a lot of people, there have even been studies on this too. And you'll see it as clickbait of like, oh, mindfulness is bad for you. I've clicked on it because I'm like, what? Mindfulness is not bad for you. And what they did was a study of people who were indulging in that, like, oh, I'm stupid. I can't do anything right. I'm doing it wrong. And they, they, were, they were forgetting to include the kindness part of it. And the kindness part, you have to start with yourself being kind with yourself, which can be hard for some people. And then that also will start to radiate out into your life as well. And that loving kindness, there's like a whole, there are books and classes on the loving kindness component of meditation, which is not my expertise, but I am a fan. I love that so much. I had a friend text me today, like they hadn't gotten back to me and they were like, I'm so stupid. I'm sorry. I'm irresponsible. And I was like, say three nice things about yourself right now. Right now. So, <laughs> yeah. I was like, you're not stupid because you didn't submit this form yeah. that I needed you to submit. It's fine. Life so absolutely. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm just glad. I'm glad you say that because we don't even notice. I do it. You know, yeah. the negative self-talk, it's really powerful and it's really yeah. important to correct those scripts and meditation, I think is the building block for that. Yeah. And just coming back to that question of like, is this really true? Is this what's really happening right now? Am I really an idiot? Probably not. <laughs> You're probably not an idiot. Like it's hard to sit quietly with your own mind and you just keep practicing. Even the Dalai Lama calls it practice. Like, I love that. We practice. What is so non-secular I love, I think that's really cool because I don't want anyone to be alienated by their religion. So for Buddhism, like how much does that play into to meditation? There's a whole Buddhist like element or they're mm. not totally connected. Is that right? They're not like unconnectable. Well, mindfulness evolved out of Buddhism, at least mindfulness as we practice it generally in the West now evolved out of Buddhism. Another one of my teachers used to talk about mindfulness. Let me see if I can get this right. He says, if you're in San Francisco and you want to go to Bakersfield, you can look at a map and you can say, okay, I'm going to get on the five and go south and I'm going to get to Bakersfield. 
you don't have to look at a map. You could just start driving, right? <laughs> you may like take a tour through Portland and then go out to Utah and then circle back down, go through the desert for a while. You, you may just totally get there on your own. And there are people who have. Um, Dan Siegel comes to mind out of UCLA. He has written all kinds of stuff on mindfulness. And um, he even tells a story about, he's a neuroscientist. And he'd done all these studies about how the mind works and how people think about themselves and things. And it wasn't until he heard, I think it was he heard Jack Kornfield talk at an event. And he was like, oh my God, I've been describing mindfulness. Like I, he got to Bakersfield, right? But he went through Portland and Nevada. And like he took this long detour and he basically landed in the exact same teaching. So now he's written these books and they're completely secular. I mean, he's a neuroscientist. It wasn't until he was presenting his data and he ended up like running into Jack Kornfield that he realized they were talking about the same thing. And now there's a little bit more like acknowledgement of what they share in terms of, of knowledge. It can be completely secular. Yeah, it totally works on its own neuroscientifically. I love the stories of Buddhism and the long standing tradition behind it. And I love the philosophical discussions that the more religious aspect of Buddhism can get into. But I know that's not everybody's jam. You know, like I, I dig it. I have books on, on the philosophical aspects of Buddhism, but that's mostly just for me and maybe my husband will like talk about it because I really feel like belief systems are so personal. And it's one of the things I like about mindfulness is that it is a belief system, but it's not a religion. Even Buddhism itself is technically a religion, but it's a non-theistic religion because the Buddha is not a god. And Buddha was just a man who lived and had some good ideas. I like that. It's not dogmatic. It's a, here's this work for me. And this is what I've learned. Go try it. See if it works for you. Very cool. And I really would love to talk to you about a silent retreat. I want to do one myself. Uh, I hear they're tough. How long was yours? Which one did you do? Would you recommend it? What was that like? Oh, I would highly recommend it. It's easier if you have a practice before you go. You don't have to be like super meditator, but if you are meditating even 10 minutes a day, even like five days a week, like, but just so that you have a regular practice already, because you're going to be meditating a lot. Most of the retreats I've done, I've done at Spirit Rock because I just love it. And it's, you know, it's a half a day drive. It's not too bad. I've also done some out in Joshua Tree, which is pretty amazing. But the basic idea is that you wake up and the, when you do more intra-level you generally, the, the routine for the day is that you'll do like a 20 minute sit and then you do 20 minutes of walking meditation and you pretty much just do that all day. So 20 minutes of sitting down, 20 minutes of walking meditation, and then they'll, you know, breaks for lunch, breaks for dinner. And then usually there'll be some kind of Dharma talk or, you know, lesson by one of the teachers who's leading the retreat after dinner and then more meditation till you want to go to bed. The ones I have done are silent. I know there are some that are not, but I actually... I love the silence. I, it gives you space to sink into yourself without having to think about interacting with other people. Also, there's something really interesting about not talking where talking is a way of regulating as humans. Like we look at each other in the face and we talk and it, and it regulates us. When you can't talk, if something emotional comes up, you kind of just have to let it. And for that reason, they also have check-ins. Like you have mentors that you check in with during the week in case things get intense, but it's not uncommon to like see somebody crying or, you know, but it's very like, you don't go up to them and be like, oh, are you okay? You just, you just let it be. And it's such an amazing, such a unique space. <laughs> like there's nowhere else in the world that I can think of that is like a meditation retreat in that way of like, it's at once super supportive 
and at the same time, just going to like, let you do your thing. It's an amazing experience. I would highly recommend for anybody who feels like they're at that point in their practice. Like if you have just started a meditation practice, it may not be time for a retreat just yet, but if you are interested in it, there are some introductory retreats, maybe do a day long. Sometimes they have non-residential retreats where you can go and do, you know, from nine to five is retreat, but then you get to go home and I don't know, have dinner with your friends or your family or whoever happens to be there and kind of step into it a little more slowly. Yeah. The longest one I've done is 10 days and it was great. Yeah. I've heard that from someone else who did it was basically exactly kind of what you're talking about is the like halfway through, it just got really tough probably because they weren't able to self-regulate with the talking and had all of those emotions. But then after that breakthrough, I mean, they were like filled with rage and despair, but then it was the happiest they've ever felt and it was uh like a residual too but it was just this moment where they reached like that bliss point that people talk about do you feel like you've ever hit that sand downs yeah absolutely absolutely I've also had the like oh my god I'm gonna die like right here on this cushion I'm so deep emotions can just kind of like smack you upside the head and you're like I'm just sitting here like what I didn't deserve this But then, then on the flip side of just, I've had the experience of just radiating joy and happiness. And those extremes are maybe 2% of meditation for me. Like they're not very common. Most of the time I sit on my cushion, I focus on my breath for 15 minutes. uh, Like I give a little bow and I'm done. And even on retreat, like you do settle in and I have had I had an experience at the retreat I did in Joshua Tree where I was doing a walking meditation. I just started sobbing and I like had a moment of being really embarrassed and looking around because, you know, you're walking amongst all the other retreatants and everyone was just doing, they're just walking. They're like, no one's, no one minded that I was sobbing. And so I just let myself sob and I probably cried for like 15 minutes and then it just kind of dried up and I felt so much lighter whatever it was, like, I don't even know what it was. I don't even know like what the thing was that had set me off, but like had a good cry and I felt so much better. And weird things will happen on retreat. I mean, people will talk about all kinds of crazy stuff. Like some of my teachers have talked about longer, there are different kinds of, there's a meditation where you try not to move at all, like even swallowing and getting into almost hallucinogenic experiences, sitting like through the night, sitting for like 12 hours without moving and talking about getting to a point where it was almost like he was dreaming, but he could control the dream. And like, I mean, people talk about some crazy stuff. I've never had an experience like that, but I have had some strange, like one time I was sitting, I was super sleepy. It was the end of the day of, at a retreat. It was like day six or whatever. And then it was almost like I slipped behind the sleepy and my body was still sleepy, but my mind was super alert. And I just like, I was like, I'm in the zone. I just, <laughs> I don't know. I can't explain it. It was the weirdest thing, but you just, that's what it, you just kind of take what comes. And that's part of the fun. Well, fun of retreat is you, you just don't know what you're going to get. What would you say to somebody who wants to get started on this journey and you're a teacher? So like, yeah. what are resources would you say? Like, what are some beginner steps? Aside from your group, obviously. Yeah. I mean, come to a very important meeting. You can meditate 10 minutes and write in your journal. Even if you're not a writer in any professional context, you're always welcome. There are really great retreat centers all over the country, all over the world. If you're on one of the coasts, it's a little easier to find because I feel like there's some more, but there are also centers like in every state. If you can't find something where you can go in person and going in person is nice when we can things are still kind of slowly opening, but the apps are great. And I would add the asterisk to it that 
meditation practiced in isolation can only go so far. If you get into the Buddhist context of it, uh, the Buddha talked about the three important factors, which uh, the Buddha, our own Buddha nature, our own ability to wake up, the Dharma, which is the truth of all things, is the teachings, and then the Sangha, which is community, which is just as important. Like he didn't rank them. Those are the three things you need if, you're, if you want to be enlightened, right? If you're talking about the more Buddhist context of it, you, you need to know that you can be, you need to study the teachings and you need community and you can't do it alone. So if there's a center nearby, I love going in person, definitely getting out on a retreat when you can. If that's not available to you, so many teachers went online during the pandemic and you would be surprised how authentic and how engaging a Zoom group meditation can be. I have a group that, it's my one group that's not writing related. I, it's just like the mindfulness class that I teach. And we've been meeting for two years and I was really reluctant at first to do it online but once I did, and I, I've just been floored at how intimate it can actually feel and how I think if you can't get to a center, Zoom meditation groups are awesome. They're really, they're totally worth it. You may be skeptical, but I would say Zoom meditation group over not having a community any day. Ideally, you can go in and like actually have a community in person, but not all of us are close enough to a center that we can do that. 100%. What noticeable changes did you see in your writing when you started meditating? Because I noticed that you've paired those two things together. Yeah, so I talked a little bit about being a better editor. That's definitely a part of it. Uh, the other thing that I noticed as a big difference in my writing was the critic in my head. So when I talked about the negative self-talk and you're sitting and you're meditating and oh, I'm stupid, my mind wandered. I feel like that you could almost just replace the word meditation with writing. That a lot of people, when they try to write, and this was me for sure, you, you know, you write a sentence and you delete it. You write a sentence, look at it for a minute, delete it. And that is just straight up your critic being like, well, that's, a, that's stupid. Don't write that. Oh, that's terrible. But the thing is, if you don't get it on the page, you can't edit it, right? You can't edit a blank page. So you have to get it on the page and then edit it into something good. Like you can edit a pile of crap into literary gold, but if there's nothing on the page, you can't do that. And so when I talk about, I talked about the draft where like I wrote, it was raining. You know, if I had let my critic take over, I never would have gotten past that sentence. I would have deleted it and written something else. And you know, you just, you get caught up in a circle and you never get anywhere with it. So being able to just give yourself permission to write crap. And I'll actually do this as an exercise with my mindful writing groups of uh, when I'm teaching, not in the actual very important meeting meetings, but when I'm teaching mindful writing, I'll have my writers do an exercise where we meditate for a few minutes and you notice where your thoughts go. And then we try to go immediately into a writing prompt so that you're writing at the same time that you're still trying to notice where your mind goes. And you're not allowed to stop. You're not allowed to like delete and go back. So you write a sentence and your brain says, well, that was stupid. You should quit. Okay, thank you for your opinion. I'm going to keep writing. And like, oh, you're, you're such an idiot. Why don't you quit now? And like, no, I'm okay, thank you. I'm just going to keep writing. So being able to manage the inner critic was probably one of the bigger shifts for me in my writing. And then like we talked about before, just in lifestyle that getting to a place where I was much more comfortable with myself helped a lot. And actually that's another interesting aspect is that writing emotions on the page. And 
I love my first book, 142 Ostriches, if anyone's looking for some fun fiction to read. But it, I, I kind of avoided emotional scenes. And it worked for my character. Like my character is a very stoic character and she's really tough. And But on my second book, I wanted to write some stuff that was a little more deep, a little more emotional, a little more interesting. And what I found was that it's really hard because when you touch into emotions that are uncomfortable, your brain will immediately remember that you need to unload the dishwasher or your dog needs a walk or like your brain is just magical at not going to places that are uncomfortable. So when I get into a scene where like my characters are arguing and it's getting emotional, it was my first book. Oh, she's stoic. She's not going to have this argument. And that was how I avoided it. And this one, mindfulness allowed me to be like, okay, this is uncomfortable, but I need to stay with it long enough to get the words on the page. So not only recognizing like, I don't really like feeling this way, but I'm gonna turn towards it and I'm gonna dig in and I'm actually gonna find the words that describe it and get the words on the page. And then like, oof, done. And that page is done. And that is also a game changer when it comes to writing. Being able to recognize tough emotions and stay with them long enough to get them on the page is, it's no joke, man, it's hard. Yes, I completely love that. One of the things I wrote in a very important meeting was like, I had to do rage for a while mm, and that was really yeah. kind of fun, but really actually hard to get like into an angry space. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. you published a book. I would love to know more about that. Tell me about this. Yeah, this is it. Well, yay. So impressive. You're a published okay. author. How did you get published? So I got an agent when I finished the manuscript and I got to a point where I liked it and I was ready, queried agents and they sold it to Kensington Press and then it came out a week before the pandemic hit. <laughs> but I'm very proud of this book. It didn't get the, there were too many other headlines for it to get a lot of attention, but it got some great reviews and I just... I, I love it. It's a good first book. I'm proud Amazing. Of it. Yes. The first yeah. of many, but what is it about? Tell me what your, what this book is about and your next book. Yeah. So this book, 142 ostriches, it's about a young woman who inherits her grandmother's ostrich farm in the Mojave desert. And she has to decide whether she's going to keep it. And meanwhile, like the whole family descends for the funeral and all the skeletons come out of the closet. And it's much more about the family than the ostriches. I just loved the ostrich ranch as a setting for a family about story because the birds are so weird. And I feel like families are just weird. You know, the bird, the birds are, they're graceful, but they're also deadly. And they have like these big Lancome eyelashes and then this like really scaly skin. Like they're just walking contradictions. And I was like, this is a setting for a story about family. That's so great. That's very creative. I never <laughs> would have thought of that. That's incredible. When I was trying to decide where to set the novel, I was working on a travel piece that was about an ostrich ranch that's in the Mojave. And I was like, oh, this will do. I love it. What about the book you're currently working on? What is that about? Uh, it doesn't have a title yet because I'm terrible with titles. The basic premise is a, a young couple who find themselves in the unusual condition of being immortal until they decide to have their first child. So it starts in the 1700s. And it basically follows them through their adventures. I tried to keep it very like adventure focused. And then the underlying through line is this question of like, why would you ever have children? Like, why do people do this? We do it all, like people do it all the time, but why? <laughs> and so I basically took the immortality of youth, right? That we all talk about and made it literal. That is also an extremely creative idea. I would definitely read that and I can relate because my husband and I are ready to travel the world right now. And <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so you're having that debate, right? Because it changes your life. It changes your priorities. And and so in my characters, they, you know, it starts in the 1700s and it comes to present day. And the woman, she always kind of thought this was a temporary thing. Like, oh yeah, this is fun, but now I want to have a family. And he, I, I don't want to give away plot points, but he has more reason to be like, no, why would we ever choose to grow old? This is fantastic. Let's like, let's keep going with this. So it's just this debate of, of like, why do you, why would you, I, why do people have children? Oh, I can't wait to read that. I can't wait for you to publish it. So Thank you. I love it. And then you are a co-founder. So I would love to just know more about like, where do you see a very important meeting going in terms of, are you going to build it out as like a tech startup? How did you meet Paulette? How did this whole thing come to be? I, I met Paulette and I think I mentioned that we were both doing our own meditation thing. And so join forces and she's been a wonderful partner. Uh, and even, even meditation even plays into that where we've had like every point where we've disagreed, we're able to like take a breath and be like, huh, let's talk about this before we fly off the handle and like get all crazy with each other. And it's been a wonderful partnership. So I'm really grateful for her. We also complement each other really nicely because she is a full-time freelancer, just like super professional, much more in the world of finance than I am. I'm on the other side of like with the meditation training and strictly fiction, not strictly fiction. I do do freelance, but not in the same way that Paulette does. Like I have a few quiet clients like my name isn't on any of the work. I just do it instead. And hers is like, she's publishing in McSweeney's and like, she's awesome. Anyway, so we complement each other really well. In terms of where we want to go in the future, like we have dreams. We started to toy with things like a very important writing retreat, or we want to get some swag. That's our next step, like baby steps right now. Get some swag up on the website for people who want stickers. Some people in the meetings were asking for stickers. We're like, oh, we can do stickers. I would love to have a yearly retreat. Again, I think I mentioned, I would love to have some different varieties of meetings. So maybe some that were longer. I would love to get some in Spanish. My father-in-law is native Spanish speaking and I've talked to him about, he's not a meditation teacher, but he is a, a writer. So we've been talking about like, maybe we could get some Spanish speaking meetings. I don't know. The future is wide open right now. We're just rolling with it. That's really cool. I think what I love most about it is it seems like you started with building a community and addressing like a need that people had, especially in the pandemic for like social accountability and just community, which is a great way to start instead of having like profit in mind and this has to be profitable in six months and that kind of thing. We're covering our expenses, but thankfully our expenses are really low and that allows us. So two of the things we decided right off the bat were that we weren't going to charge. We would ask for donations, but we know as writers that you don't always have money. So we weren't going to charge and two that we were going to pay our teachers because writers work for free way too often. And to make those two things work, we're like, I don't even know if that's feasible. So the fact that enough people have donated that we've been able to pay our teachers and, you know, pay for zoom and, website hosting. And that's, you know, we don't have a lot of expenses and we try to keep them really low and then just roll from there. Like if right now, any extra that comes in, we're putting towards, we want to go to AWP and have a a booth at the writing conference in March. So any extra that we have at the end of the month, we put in like a little savings fund for that, just so that we can keep promoting it and keep getting people to come. And I am not a finance person by nature. Uh, I am learning with Paulette about all of this. And, and it feels like a good learning ground because like you said, the focus is really the people. 
So as long as we're paying our bills, like we've accomplished our mission. Yes, it's definitely a lifelong journey. Hopefully this podcast and or my blog will produce some things that can help. I think you'll probably like some of the guests that haven't been published yet, but excellent. Yeah, very cool. So I'm going to ask like any reading resources or blogs aside from your own that someone can look to that you love. Is there anything you would recommend that way? I mean, Jack Cornfield is one of my favorite teachers. So he's written a number of books, anything written by him. He just has a way of writing about things where he doesn't take himself super seriously. One of his books is called After the Ecstasy of the Laundry, which is about coming back from a retreat. We're like, oh, I feel so blissed out and peaceful. And then you have to come back to life. You ha- Unless you decide to go be a monk on a mountaintop, you you know, still have to buy the groceries and pay for the groceries. And But that title, I think, even speaks to his sense of humor about it. He's a wonderful teacher. I really feel like there's so many good resources online right now. Um, I would point people towards Spirit Rock. They have some online stuff still. Insight LA is an excellent source. There's a group called Dharma Punks in New York that they have this one teacher, Josh Coda, I think his name is. I love his style. He has this, I mean, he's just wicked smart. He doesn't talk around things. He's like, we're going to go straight to the heart of this thing. I would love to teach the way he teaches. He's fantastic. And then on the loving kindness front, which I always would put a plug in for, Susan Salzberg, anything she's written on loving kindness. And again, like when you hear the term loving kindness, I mean, I think people think of a lot of like navel gazing and like, oh, peace and love. But like, to be kind to people is actually pretty hard a lot of the time. And she really addresses that, like, why? Why would? Why do you need to be kind? Why is kindness important to you? Not necessarily to the person that you're addressing, but that like when you are angry with someone and you carry that around, they don't know it. You're not hurting them by like keeping yourself angry at people, you're hurting yourself. And yet it's really hard to let go of that. Like we feel this entitlement of like, I've been wronged and I'm gonna stay angry until they know that they're like, you're not hurting them, you're hurting yourself. So I think Susan Salzberg does a really good job of cutting through that and getting to the, the crux of what it means to an individual to embrace kindness over anger and how that can be a real game changer as well. Can't wait to download and read all of those. It sounds like some great resources. So where can people find you to get in touch and join a very important meeting? Yeah, so I'm everywhere. I'm April Davila, at April Davila. Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. My website is aprildavila.com. And then a very important meeting is a very important meeting.com. We try to keep things really simple. (laughs) So you can find the links on, on that website. And, and then of course I would guess I'd put one more plug in for the book. If people wanted to go buy it, I would encourage you to buy it on bookshop.org. Bookshop.org is like Amazon, except all the money goes to your local bookstore instead of a mega conglomerate thing like Amazon. I very much love that. Thank you for the recommendation. And then I totally want to give you the option and you can say yes or no, this is like based on your schedule, but did you want to do like a meditation sample on this podcast to give people a sneak peek of what they get at a very important meeting? Or do you want them to just have to attend to find out themselves? No, I would be happy to. All right. Well, let's, let's go for it. I'm going to go here. All right. So coming into a seated position where we can be upright and alert, but still relaxed. Closing your eyes if that's comfortable for you. If not, just casting your gaze downward to minimize distraction. Taking a few intentionally deeper breaths. Letting our awareness fall into the physical sensations of breathing. Noticing the expansion and contraction of the rib cage the passing of air 
through the nose or over the lips. The subtle change of temperature at the back of the throat, how the air is a little cooler on the way in, a little warmer on the way out. Just taking these few moments to notice our breathing, this thing we do all day, every day. And then once you've taken those few deeper breaths, go ahead and let go of any control around the breathing. Just let it find its natural rhythm without any expectation or judgment, just noticing where your breath lands. Maybe it's more shallow, maybe it's a little deeper. And then widening our awareness to take in the body as a whole, noting any areas of tension, pushing a little relaxation into those spaces. So dropping the shoulders down and away from the ears, relaxing the belly. Check in with any areas where you know you tend to store tension. For me, it's the jaw or the hip. And then if we discover any areas of discomfort as we check in with our body, take a moment to just acknowledge those. And it could be a physical discomfort or it may also be a mental or emotional discomfort. So maybe you're worried about something or stressed or maybe your knees hurt, you know, whatever isn't how we would like it to be. Just take a moment and turn towards that and say, okay, it's not perfect but this is how it is right now and I can be with this. Knowing that we can't cure our aches and pains with attention, but that if we turn towards them instead of away from them, we can lighten the hold that they have on our attention. And then having acknowledged any discomforts we're carrying, we can then invite in some gratitude for all the things that are working. Despite any aches and pains, our bodies and minds are working well enough for us to sit here, be together. You think about all the organs and bones and blood vessels that have to work just for you to sit here and take a deep breath. It's, <clears throat> it's kind of remarkable and definitely worth a moment of gratitude. And then for the remainder of the meditation, we'll rest our attention on an anchor. Often people like to use the breath. The breath is always with us and it's always subtly changing. And so it can be a nice, easy way to settle our attention to focus on the breath. But it's not at all uncommon for people to have the experience of the breath feeling kind of tight or uncomfortable if you focus on it for too long. And if that's the case, just know it's totally normal. Don't judge yourself for it. Just Turn your attention to a different physical sensation in the body. You can focus on the sensation of your feet on the floor or your hands in the lap, bottom on the cushion. Or you can even turn your attention outside the body to the sounds in the room. And just wait patiently like a cat at a mouse hole for the next sound to pass away, to rise up and pass away. Even the quietest rooms do have noise if we're patient. So you can let that patience and attentiveness be your anchor.
if that's comfortable. And whichever anchor you choose, we'll stay with it. Let's do another four minutes here. Let your tension rest there. Let all of your thoughts just float on by. Try to think of this space as a respite from the continuous monkey mind activity that we tend to do all day, every day. Just let that go. All of our to-dos and have-tos will still be there. I promise they will not go away. You can take these few minutes to just settle in and rest. And sooner or later, you will notice that your mind gets caught up in a thought. It's important to be kind with yourself. Minds think it's what they do. We don't want them to stop. But for right now, we'll just notice that you've had that thought. You might even take a moment to tag it, say, okay, I'm planning or I'm remembering. And then just let that thought go, come back to the anchor, begin again as many times as you need to. Wow, April, thank you so much for coming on the show. I feel so relaxed and clear-headed and just ready to take on the world after that meditation. And I have to say, she's right. The benefits of meditation really do sneak up on you. So I highly recommend forming a daily practice. And if you're looking for a community and a source of accountability, a very important meeting is a total game changer. At least it was for me. As someone who is looking for motivation, accountability, and a sense of community when I was self-employed and my schedule and structure was completely wiped out from underneath me. This was the group that brought it all together and pieced my day and gave me a sense of discipline and structure um, and just a social life during quarantine. So I'm sure that it can have some of the same incredible benefits for you. And there's really no better way to get into a habit of daily writing or meditation if that's one of your goals. As always, if you enjoyed this free meditation gift, please smash that like button if you're watching on YouTube and hit subscribe so you never miss another episode. You're especially not going to want to miss next week's episode. It's a really good one. So stay tuned and I will see you next week on Money Self Made. 
we are going to be renaming the show to Invested Success. So if you've been searching for the show, that's what you're going to need to search from from now on is Invested Success. 